Hello and welcome to the history of Vikings. During the Middle Ages, seafaring Scandinavian marauders wrought havoc in lands both near and far, from Iceland to Finland and Cordoba to Constantinople. These were warriors who belonged to an altogether violent society. They are known to us today as Vikings. One may read about their military exploits in Old Norse sagas in the Chronicles of Christian Monks, walk across the remains of warships and ring fortresses, or behold their carefully preserved weapons in some of Europe's finest museums. Yet it has always been unclear to me how the Vikings fought. Did they use battle tactics? Were young warriors formally trained for battle? How should we understand warfare as it relates to the Viking way of life? Today on the podcast, we'll be addressing all of this and more in an exciting episode about Viking combat. Joining me to discuss this topic is William R. Short, manager and lead researcher of Hurstwick, a New England-based organization devoted to Viking culture. In addition to co-authoring his latest book, William wrote Viking Weapons in Combat Technologies, along with Icelanders in the Viking Age. I'm also joined by Rainier A. Oskarsson, an Icelandic martial arts instructor and combat researcher at Hurstwick. Rainier has been recognized by the Wrestling Association of Iceland for his study of Glíma, the Viking Age empty-hand combat that evolved into Iceland's national sport. William and Rainier authored a book entitled Men of Terror, a Comprehensive Analysis of Viking Combat. Before we get into my conversation with William and Rainier, I want to tell you that you can now support the History of Vikings on Patreon as a way to support this podcast. Hosting the show is my greatest passion in life, and your help makes all of this possible. Follow the link in the description of this episode, or go to patreon.com slash history of Viking. I'm beyond grateful for any support, and if you join at the Odin tier, I'll mail you a physical copy of my book, Viking Warrior vs. Frankish Warrior, Frankia 799-911, which was published by Osprey. Fully illustrated, the book assesses the warriors fighting on both sides during the Vikings' attacks on the Frankish realm in the 9th century as raiding escalated into full-scale siege warfare. I'm so grateful for any support at patreon.com slash history of Viking. Without further ado, here's my conversation with William R. Short and Rainier A. Oskarsson. William and Rainier, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. It's a pleasure, Noah. Thank you for having us here today. Well, the pleasure's all mine. I'm really excited to have you both here today. The subject of Viking combat is widely requested by listeners. And I was telling you, William, before we hit record, I've been an admirer of Hurstwick for many years. So it's it's great to, to have both you and Rainier on the show today. The work that you do is groundbreaking. Your research is thorough. And because of it, we're able to understand the Vikings more deeply, which is something myself and my listeners can really appreciate. Now, the title of your recent book is Men of Terror. Where does this come from? 
and what does it tell us about the Vikings? I'll try to answer the first part, and I may not have a, a clear answer for the second. That'll take a lot more development. So there is a runestone uh, in the database of runestones. It's DR214. Uh, it was erected about a thousand years ago uh, for a in memory of a man named Friday who died in Sweden, who was erected in Denmark, probably by his kinsmen. And the inscription on the runestone says that Friday was the first among all Vikings and that he was a terror of men. And that really struck me when I read that. Who was this Friday? What was it that he did that made him first among Vikings? And why was he so admired if he was a man of terror? And so that seemed like a good title for the book because it did understanding that Viking society that praised and admired those sorts of behaviors, we needed to understand that if we were going to understand Viking combat. And there's a, a thread under lying underneath that that we'll probably discuss later in this podcast, and that is that Friday achieved immortality in that he achieved Orstir, which in the Viking mindset was the part of a man that continues after his death. And I'm sure we'll get into that more. Reina, would you like to add something? Yeah, just a perfect answer. Nothing to add. You're, you're stealing oh. the spotlight. <laughs> <laughs> well, so understanding, you know, what this, what this means, this man of terror means was really key to understanding Viking combat. Fascinating. Now, this is something I've I've thought a, a great deal about, and I'd I'd love to get your your take from both of you on this. What did it mean to be a warrior in medieval Scandinavia? I'll just start with that. I'll start with it. So our results show that it was not a militaristic society. It was a warrior society, if you, if you in the big scope of that word. So all the sources point to violence. Just every single source, foreign and domestic. It was an individualistic society that where violence was the undercurrent. Even in the law codes, it says that uh, if you cannot protect your life or take another, then you cannot participate in specific legal uh, matters. So it it's just a necessity of being able to use this tool called violence. So I don't know if it was warlike uh, or or militaristic in that sense, or if they if you would uh, state this person as a warrior, but everybody had to be able to dish out violence and defend against. Them. And we see that again and again and again in all the sources. And that was a surprise how overwhelming this this violence infuses their society. So we see it in the law codes, as Rainer said, you know literary sources, pictorial sources, even things like house architecture, we see this violence running throughout their society. So were there professional soldiers? That doesn't seem too likely. But were people prepared for violence? Absolutely. Havamal is a perfect example, and Rainer can probably speak to that better than I can. Yeah, okay. Thrown into the bus. The first verse of Havamal, uh, this sort of uh, shows you the mindset of the of the culture. You're raised in this culture. So the first verse of Haumol is uh, uh, never enter a door without looking behind it because you have no idea where danger is. Another one says, and never be further than one step away from your weapons. Another one says, even though spears will not take your life, old age will not give you any peace. 
And of course, the most famous one, 76, that uh, you will die. Everything everything around you will die, but uh, your good orstir will not die. So being raised in that uh, environment and uh, again, going back to the idea that they were uh, that they were not like a specific class warriors, uh, we can see it with glima, the 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 wrestling method. And now uh, everybody did glima, it seems. And you can see that uh, if you were not uh, the best glima man, they would uh, match you against somebody who was not a good glima man either. And if you were a brute as a glima man, they would just make two people against you. So they evenly mastered, and and everybody could play. It was not for just these chosen few. So that's what we're looking for, actually. This holistic idea, this holistic image. What what was the undercurrent of the sort of the Viking population? Fascinating. Now, when somebody comes to either of you and they ask, "What were the Vikings like? What was their society like?" Um, I guess how would you answer that as it relates to warfare and combat? You know, like. Is it fair to say that Viking society was intrinsically warlike and or and militaristic? Or I guess I guess how would you answer that question? I will answer and you will answer better, William. How about that? So a militaristic, no, I would say so. It depends on your definition of the word military and war and so on and so forth. And warrior like you you could say that. I would rather say that the undercurrent is this is danger world from a human interaction from a sort of harm done by other humans. So yeah, yeah, and we will probably get into that later as well, because the mindset really dictates, it really tells us how the society was, where they praise the most those who are called drinkur. And drinkur is derived from the word drangi, which means pillar. And it'll probably, I don't know if we get into it or not, but our, our research is insane. So when we hear a word, in the sagas, we need to follow it all the way to the day-to-day and preferably in plural languages. So what Drinkur means today in modern Icelandic is different than Drinkur meant in, in the Vikings, even though it has some uh, resemblance, some residual energy from it. So if you understand that Drinkur means a sense of trust infused with honor, and that is the highest ideal. Now, that is the highest ideal in any violent society. Who can you trust? Yeah. So... So I wouldn't say they're all brutes killing each other left and right, but the wireless is the undercurrent. Is this the point where we should talk about mindset? Because that is so key to understanding Viking combat. Please. Yeah, that's a great segue. Yes. Okay. I'll start. We think we need to understand the mindset to understand combat, and we think we need to understand combat to understand Vikings. Without an understanding of, of Viking combat, we don't think you can understand the sagas. You can't understand the poetry. You can't understand the mythology. So we need to understand the combat. And mindset, I think of as the software that runs in your brain. And, you know, thoughts govern action. So what that software is, what that mindset is, determines how a Viking is going to fight. It's, it's just that simple. So we need to understand that on a really, really deep level. And an analogy that Rainer has used many times in the past, and I like it, so I'm going to just steal it uh-huh. from him, is to look at a... a sorry. Wow. <laughs> you can say it then. No, too late now. You steal it, good sir. Okay. All right. I'll steal. Is look at uh, a feudal Japan. So we have two warriors in feudal Japan, samurai and ninja. From the same culture, same DNA, same diet, same language. But wow, they fight so differently. And it's because they have totally different mindsets. 
Um, you know, you can take away the identifying characteristics, for instance, take away their clothes and give them a cowboy suit and take away their weapons and give them a six shooter and tell them tomorrow at noon, you're going to fight to the death. And tomorrow at noon, the samurai will stand proud. He'll state his name and his clan and they'll issue the challenge. And meanwhile, the ninja will creep up behind him and shoot him in the back of the head. And it's because the mindset is so different that the fighting approach is so different. That's what we need to understand with the Vikings. And Drenker is the key. Rainer? Yeah, well, you stole the idea so well, <laughs> I'm just going to give it to you. Yeah. Excellent performance. Then it's, it's as simple as that. What you will do or do, won't do in life in general is based on mindset. And that is really crucial to combat as well. What you do or won't do is based on your mindset. So Drenker, now- as he's, sorry, please. No, I was just gonna. I was just gonna ask, and I think you were going there, Rainier. Is uh, what is how, how do you f- define Dranger, and then ultimately, like, what is the Viking mindset? So uh, the Viking. Uh, do we have about five hours? Uh, <laughs> if not, just buy the book and read about it. Yeah. Uh, but in, in, in short, in short, short, short terms, it's uh, uh, we mentioned how about seventy six, and that says that all still date out there. Uh, that means uh, your good name will never die. That the people will still continue talking about you long after your death. Yeah. So William talked about Frade, for example, and it's a thousand years since he, he died. So we're trying to give him, uh, well, he got his own Orstid. But to get this good Orstid means that you were Drinkur. You were a man to be trusted, man or woman to be trusted. Yeah. And that means when you fought, you fought to the very end and preferably beyond that. That meant you didn't harm women or children. You didn't stab people in the street. You you did your absolute best. You could be trusted on. So there are other uh, sort of go around things like burning longhouses. It was considered really grave if you assassinated somebody, if you murdered him, you killed somebody without yeah. acknowledging it, taking responsibility. Really old regular. Uh, but if you burn somebody uh, inside his house, nothing terrible. You at least took responsibility for your actions. And it actually, the, the, the act of burning people inside the lockouts is a humane way to do something really inhumane. It's to limit casualties. Mm-hmm. So I'd like to add a little bit to that. And that is uh, this, this concept that Drenger is what Vikings, both men and women, aspire to. Uh, it, it's what they wanted to be. It's it's the person you wanted at your side. You needed to know that in a violent society. Someone who would fight with you to the, the very end. Uh, someone who wouldn't betray you. Someone who would tell you if they heard of a plot against you. And people tried to be Drenger-like uh, as much as possible. And by being a Drenger, that was a way to achieve the Orstir. Orstir literally translates to word glory. It's what people think about you and say about you after you're, you are dead. And as Havamal points out, it's the eternal part of a man or a woman in the Viking age. You die, as verse 76 says, but your Orstir doesn't die. And so people did Drengen-like activities in order to enhance their Orstir. And that's really what a Viking was trying to do in a fight. The fight was much less about life or death. It was about being a Drenger and achieving Orstir. And it was wow. something that a young man was expected to do to show that he had become a man, to go out and do something Drenger-like that would get him Orstir. And the two 
activities that are most commonly mentioned in the literary source, and maybe exclusively, I don't remember, was dueling or raiding. Those are activities where you put yourself to the test, where you put your life on the line, and if you succeeded, then you achieved austere. Reina, what did I miss? What can you add? Nothing. I'll just add to it a little bit. So he talked about life and death, that Orsted is uh, sort of the infinite life. Uh, life is finite, but we, we see even in the sources that life and death is a super gray area. Uh, it's, it doesn't seem, and this is another thing we hit again and again and again and again. That's uh, our modern mindset, how we perceive Vikings. Uh, so how we perceive life or death, how we perceive it all. And we need to push that all away. Uh, when you see that the Vikings thought life and death is a super gray area, but uh, yeah. it is not. And you then you, you get some sense of how they fought, actually. If I would teach you Noah Glima, and I would really uh, uh, haunt you with a mindset, uh, brainwash you, and I would give you an axe, <laughs> you'll probably perform quite similar to a Viking. Fascinating. So... You, you think this Viking mindset, is it fair to say that this contributed to uh, the medieval Norse's effectiveness on the battlefield uh, during their early Middle Ages? I'll try, William. Yes, I'll try. Uh, I think it explains their behavior. I think it really be- okay. explains their behavior well. That what we see, our picture of combat that appears in our mind is everything points to being brute force, brute power, just destroy what is in front of you. Do whatever you need to do. So that means improvisation and lots of examples of that, especially when we start talking about the weapons. Yeah. The king of weapons is is something improvised. We'll get to that a little bit later. But you do what you need to do to succeed, to win the fight, as long as you can leave the battlefield at Drenger. And that explains a lot of, I believe, it explains a lot about Viking combat. So it's not technical fighting. It's not, you know, battle formations. It's not any of that kind of stuff. It's just really tactical. It's just really get the job done. And as long as you end up uh, uh, leaving the battlefield as a drinker, it's all good. Uh, I'm going to add to that. I, I, I wouldn't be happy seeing these guys in my neighborhood at least. So at least that effective. And I sort of hope the police would take them up. Yeah. And so uh, <laughs> well, most that brings up definitely. an interesting point, if I may add to that a little bit. And the, even the, the laws describe that, that if you are raiding or dueling in your own neighborhood, that is not a dranger. As long, but if you raid or duel someplace else, then that's dranger. So you don't want these people in your neighborhood. Wow. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, now, since we're on the subject of, of mindset, if I may ask, um, and I this is a, a complicated issue, I, I suppose, but I'd love to get both of your thoughts. What role might the belief in, in Norse gods, um, Thor, Odin, you know, other deities have played in the life of a Viking warrior? Reina? I'll give it a shot. Yes, please. <clears throat> so, first of all, I, I will answer a different question and probably won't answer your question, <laughs> and I apologize. So... Uh, we have to go to the question, did uh, the gods create men or did men create gods? Uh. Because uh, our our, la- uh, our method of research is called the layer testing and layer sources. So all the sources must point to the same direction. They must show the same image. So our theory was that we should see this a similar thing, not the same thing with human interaction to violence as with the gods and their interaction to violence. And if you look at the... Uh, 
Þór and Óðin and Týr uh, you would see Thor with this bold power, just power based uh, uh, being, then you see the cleverness and cunningness and adaptability and improvisation with Odin, and then you see this idea of like, uh, be a man to be trusted and courageous in Týr this drinker so if you took these three, you would actually understand Viking combat now what influence they had I, uh, I can't tell you so we did a, a lecture on um it's called Life, Death, and Afterlife to the Viking Warrior. Yeah. And uh, in it, we sort of uh, show that, again, life and death and afterlife, it's a, it's a great thing. The separation of spirit and body, it's a great thing. But what is clear is important and will never die is Orstir. So how much important they had compared to other things, uh, because we have to compare it to somebody or something. It, compared to Orstir, I would say no. Not much. Yeah. They, I mean, there were spirits all around. There were Landvættir, there were... Yeah. Uh, there were Alvar, there were Jötin. This was all around them. The supernatural was all around them, magic and so yeah. on and so forth. So what had more influence than others? I don't know. It seemed like this supreme raw image of uh, of fame. And I can't quote it directly, but even uh, Saxo Grammatico said that... Uh, that uh, these people, they uh, they didn't seek riches or anything. They sought uh, uh, fame through through uh, toil and war. <laughs> so that wow. sums it up quite nicely. Yeah. These are not nice people at, in, in every way, Noah. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Well, that is fascinating. William, I'd, I'd love if you have anything to add on that, but Rainier put it, so I love how you put that, Rainier. Yeah, no, nothing to add. The only other thing that I would add that uh, Rainer's comments triggered in my mind is this whole yeah. supernatural creature, these paranormal beings of which yes. populated the Viking world. And, uh, you know, we can even see elements of combat in the way that uh, the Viking people battled these supernatural creatures as they're described in the literary sources. We see some of the same battle tech, uh, techniques used, uh, the tactics used, especially in Glima. Rainer can certainly talk a lot more about that than I can. Yeah, don't open that can of worms. It'll okay. be here all night. <laughs> um, well, this is fascinating. I love that we've set the stage for Viking combat, sort of first by looking at the Viking mindset and understanding the role that that played in the success and performance of the Viking warrior. Now, getting a little more uh, technical, one question that I, I do have is, do we know anything about the development of a Viking warrior? Like, did formal training occur? Any sort of rites of passage that, that we know of? Yeah, I'll, I'll give that a go, and I'll try to answer so uh, well that William has nothing to add, but we'll see. <laughs> so, uh, formal training... There is one unique weapon that we see formal training with, and that's the bow. We see it as the, as the king's weapon and uh, the hidden's weapon. So we see some suggestion that people had to be trained how to shoot bow. Yeah. But the other weapons, if there is any formal training, uh, the, the sources are super quiet about it. And I don't know if it was or wasn't, but I just know that if you and I were grown up with the Gleam with a mindset of, uh, well, you'll die, so make something of yourself. People need to talk about you. Uh, the idea of power, play Kraft Liquid, we play Nevtap, 
uh, we'd hear heroic stories of, of past wars and heroes. And then you would get uh, Axe in Hand. I think you could at least uh, fool me in that uh, there was an actual Viking in the house. So I don't know if there was formal training. There's not much sources to back that up. And, and if there wasn't, they would still perform quite similarly. I have very little to add to that. Just a couple of, of, of details, since I tend to be nerdy about these things. The uh, formal training in archery is uh, attested to both by literary sources, comments about going to the shooting range, uh, talking about wow. you know, targets using in the shooting range, talking about instructors who teach archery. And then it's also confirmed in the archaeology where we find arrow heads that most likely were for practice. They're rounded. Um, they're not going to do a lot of damage. Um, so it seems like there's a lot of evidence for that. And the other thing that I'd just like to add to, Reina talked about, not Laker, Nefetop. just want to translate. Not Laker is the Viking ball game that we're uh, trying to understand at Hurstwick. Uh, we've had a lot of fun playing it trying to figure out the rules from the literary sources, trying to play it. And in the last year or two, we sort of had an, uh, an epiphany and really now simply yeah. much clearly, much more clearly understand it. And it's just brutal. It, it is combat with a ball. <laughs> uh, and uh, what the kind board of game... What do we live in where people don't know what Knachtlik or Neftapl is? I'm what sorry. Is, what is this coming to? <laughs> What was the arsenal of a Viking warrior? What weapons did they use? Okay, I'll try to answer that. There's what we think of as traditional weapons. So sword, spear, axe. So there's a short sword, which was called the sax. And that seems to be more prominent in the earlier part of the Viking age than in the later. And then bow and arrow. So those are the main offensive weapons. And then for defensive material, it'd be the shield, large round wooden shield, which seems to be universal. And then much less common, some helmet and a male shirt. So those were the conventional weapons. But it's the unconventional weapons that are so interesting. There is, we have identified something that we call the king of weapons. It is the weapon that a Viking would run to when there was any threat of violence or any threat of, of, of offensive uh, acts against him. And that weapon, surprisingly, is stones, thrown stones. So if a battle was imminent, a Viking would try to run to a Vini, which is a desirable battle location. And one of the things that makes it very desirable is loose stones for throwing. So you could throw stones at your opponent. Uh, before naval battles, uh, I mean, uh, during naval battles, stones would commonly be thrown from one ship to another. And before a naval battle, ships would stop to pick up more stones so they'd have plenty of ammunition for that upcoming battle. So it seems like this is uh, a key, key weapon in the Viking arsenal. Brenner, would you like to add to that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, there there are things that are sexy about Vikings. There are things that are uh, less sexy. So you won't see, go to any museum and see wow stones. 
wow, this is the weapons they use left and right. I mean, you won't see it. Uh, so that's yeah. sort of just pushed aside. Even though to our, uh, in our research, we see that it is the king of weapons. Now, there are other weapons uh, that are uncommercial as well, like uh, uh, just fire, burning down houses, and the adaptability to, to use your environment. So there's a famous saga and uh, famous episode in the saga that I don't remember which saga it's from. William, you'll have to save me. Is where uh, two men were fighting on top of a cliff. They fell into the ocean, and one of the guys saw that the other guy's belt buckle had broken. So he pulled down his pants so he couldn't swim and he drowned. Yeah. So this is sort of the idea of the adaptability. Right. Forced to write the saga. Forced to write the saga. So so when you when you understand this. Uh, because Viking combat is not complex, and uh, we need yeah. to take off our uh, 21st century glasses to see it. Uh, like at the, the, you were talking about training, possibly, but uh, for the the axe, for example, uh, if we know the design, if we look at this design, it's just meant for chopping. If you look at the kennings, William probably explain what a kenning is. If you look at the kenning, it's called Gauchiva or Flagdabrinja, which means sort of monster of armor so it destroys the armor and we understand that glima is all about power we understand that um, we go to the, the motion capture and see just the intense power it gives with all the measurements on then we just see you know what this is a tool meant for taking apart what is in front of you and it is not as complex as highly technical just a word about the kennings uh for yeah. anyone who is listening to the podcast who may not be familiar with it, it's a it's a artistic tool of poetry in the Viking Age. And poetry was uh, super important in the Viking Age. They did not really have a written culture. You know, they could read and write the runes, and it seems like that was widespread. But if there was anything longer that they wanted to remember, they would remember it through poetry. And poetry was one of the highest of the arts. It was a gift from Odin. And uh, the poets of the age were the historians, the journalists, the librarians, you know, things were remembered through poetry. And poetry was very complex so that as it was conveyed orally from one poet to the next, to the next, and to the audiences, it was complex, which sort of served as a modern day checksum. In other words, if there was an error, the artistic aspect of the poetry would not work any longer. There'd be something wrong with the rhythm, something wrong with the alliteration, something wrong with the other aspects of it. And Kenning's was one aspect yeah. of that art of poetry. And Kenning is where uh, a word or a phrase stands in for another word. And so instead of saying acts, you can say what it was that the writer just said, which I can't pronounce. Yeah. And so, yeah, yeah. And, and, and it's, it's um, an aspect that we research when we research the weapons, looking at things like the kennings. How are these weapons represented in poetry? Does that tell us something about their use? And for the axe, it certainly does. Um, if we look at kennings, for instance, for swords, and the kennings for swords are all related to fire. So a sword is a, a an element of destruction. It destroys what it touches. And the other aspect of, of the, the words that we look at is etymology. What is the origin of the word? And sometimes that gives us deep insight into how the weapon was used. And the example we always like to use is spear. Yeah. In the ancient, ancient language, uh, spear is spiot, and that's cognate with the modern English word spit, which is the iron rod you stick through a piece of meat to cook it over the fire. 
that tells us all that we need to know about a spear. The spear is something you push all the way through your opponent. So that kind of, of research into the language, into the etymology, into the kennings, into the, the use of the words, really helps us see aspects of how the weapons were used. What have you found, uh, William and Rainier, in, in sort of your hands-on you know, work that you're doing at Hurstwick, if some might call it experimental archaeology, but what, what have you found uh, when you've like done work with the Viking weapons? Like any, any like insights in terms of how they were used, what weapons might have been preferred um, that you'd like to share here today? Can I try? Really yes, of course. You. So it's all dependent on situation, of course. And uh, this is another thing that uh, people maybe don't understand that uh, uh, we take ourselves out of the picture. So uh, if we train too much and become too good at Viking carpet, we're better than Vikings than uh, we can to research on them, really. So it's a, it's a really difficult thing. So what, we, what we're researching and testing is Viking carpet. And then we have to ask, well, what is Viking carpet? Is it on a flat field? Is it always uh, one against one? How is it? So naval battle, uh, an abgit, a long spear might be best. But we find that, for yeah. example, the sword that has uh, that is sort of the highest science of Viking Age. It's like a, a, a guided missile compared to the meteor that is the uh, axe. So right. it, it's really dependent. So it's really dependent. I mean, how far are you? Are you on a are you on a V? Are you higher up than your opponent? Superior fighting position, and then doesn't matter if you have a sword and that you like stones, just massive amounts of them. So. And this is all based on, on uh, uh, experimental archaeology as we, we try it. Uh, but we try the sources. We don't try like how we would do it in 21st century setting. We actually go to the place. Um, for, uh, there was uh, an interesting research we did not long ago that was uh, doing GMA or wrestling uh, on ice. Because we know that Vikings did it and we know that it uh, extended way into the uh, 20th century of Iceland. And uh, uh, I could say, well, what is the best Glima move? And then she would say, well, are you doing it on ice or are you, uh, is it a drowning game or is it on a hardwood floor? So it's, uh, there's no correct answer really. What is the best weapon? It was depends on the situation. And this, this idea of doing our testing, doing our simulated combat on, uh, in situations that closely resemble where Viking combat was done. The perfect example of that is naval combat. Uh, I remember when Rainer and I were first talking about how can we simulate that, I said, oh, you know, we'll just create something that's like the deck of a ship and we can do our fighting there. And he said, no, 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 we need to be on a Viking ship. We need to have a rocking deck. We need to have all the, the, the rigging, all the stuff, all the stuff that's in the way. So when we did that, she totally changed how we would fight. It was an eye-opening experience to see how much stuff was in the way and how difficult it was to actually fight on the rocking deck of a ship. So that kind of being in the situation where Vikings were doing their combat was an essential part of our research. The other aspect I'd like to talk about a little bit, what was the best weapon? Well, I don't think there was one. I think it depends totally on the situation. I think people used what made sense at the moment and what they had what they were comfortable with. But one aspect of Hurstwick's research is this really deep scientific approach to the research. So we've done all kinds of crazy stuff with testing weapons and testing how, how people move when they use the weapons. Rainer talked briefly about the motion capture. That was absolutely fascinating seeing 
what muscles, what joints play, have a role in this as the weapon is swung and when do they uh, come? Uh, when are they producing their energy and how does this all come together to put the maximum amount of destructive energy into the target at the point of conduct, uh, contact? And then uh, that is we're combining with our study of the physics of weapons. You know, what's how can you use a weapon to to maximize that destructive energy? And we think also it teaches us a little bit about how Vikings made their weapons, because there are physical parameters that you can calculate based on measurements of these swords. And you can clearly see that there was a range of swords from the Viking age. We've done these measurements on a number of historical swords. And there's these physical parameters. And without getting too nerdy and too deep into this, one of the most important ones is uh, what we call the moment of inertia. And that really predicts how the sword feels in the hands and how yeah. it behaves. And so we can make modern replica swords using the training room that have different ranges of moment of inertia. And some of them are just, they just fly in their own initiative. They just do exactly what you ask of them. And others are just brute force cutting weapons. And we see that same range in historic Viking weapons. So understanding the physics of the weapon, and how the weapon interacts with the target to apply destructive energy, that's a key part of our research as well. So the ax, that's just brutal. It's huge amounts of energy. It's just destroying the target. The sword, much less, but what the sword has going for it is maneuverability, which the ax does not. And again, Rader alluded to this, we think of the axe as the meteor that comes crashing down through the atmosphere and kills all the dinosaurs, whereas the sword is like a, a guided missile that can be maneuvered up to the last minute of target. Fascinating. Now, at this time, I'd just love to remind listeners to visit the link in the description of this episode to pick up a copy, William and Rainier, of your book, Men of Terror, a comprehensive analysis of Viking combat. Now, my next question do we know anything about the use of Viking battle tactics? Like I know the shield wall has become uh, popularized, you know, um, certainly on screen due to history channel TV shows like Vikings. Um, but do we know anything really about battle tactics? Yeah, we know, we know somewhat. Now I, I will remind you, the, our, our results are individualistic and uh, warlike, They're like warrior-like. Not so much militaristic. So uh, we have burning of houses, uh, a typical tactic. And uh, we have uh, ambushes, which is unlike ambushes that we sort of perceive. We have uh, spying. We have uh, ideas of fortresses, whiskey. We have ideas of uh, uh, V, the superior battle location. Uh, what am I missing, William? A I don't think battle. Have. We have the shield wall, yep. the skeleton, which is usually not anything like you see normally, mm -hmm. and uh, in the uh, media, anything more of them. I can't think of it. Right. Yeah. So there are a few tactics. Is it fair to say that the, you know, success of a group of Vikings in battle really came down to the individual skill of each warrior, as opposed to like well thought out tactical formations? Hey, William, you start. I'll, I'll go after you. <laughs> okay. Um, so I think uh, a big part of this was the desire to be a Drenger and achieve Orsteer. They keep coming back to that again yeah. and again and again. Yeah. And brute force seems to be key. And I just wonder sometimes if it was the warrior that had 
the most power behind his strike was the one that was going to be most successful. Right? Or- yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah, I think, I don't think the military sort of formations and so on, um, uh, were a clever thing to tell you the truth. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. when they really fought standing armies, they didn't do so well, at mm-hmm. least at the end. Uh, so that should tell us something. Uh-huh. What common misconceptions about Viking combat do you both wish to correct? Mm. I will start and I will give you a lengthy answer and it will <laughs> probably be a single answer that you're looking for. That's so, okay. So the, the there are just way too many, way too many. What we, when we do our research, we do it to falsify. So we have, we use the scientific method, which means we have a theory and we try to falsify it. And if more people would try that approach to falsify the theory instead of support it, uh, we'd be in a good state. There's so much, there's so much good information out there, but it's like gargant to it. It's overwhelmed by less good information. Let's put it that way. So it's supposed to be a fun world, interesting world, curious world, and you're not supposed to eat up what somebody says. You're supposed to check, well, how does he know? One of the sources for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And even if somebody in the 1950s said it, it's enough to be right. Yeah. He has to have his sources. He has to have his testing. So what misconception? A lot. A lot of it. Would you like to give an example? Yeah. No, I would not. There's too many. So my favorite is, is I would like to see uh, my my dream scenario would be if I did, it wasn't poisoned by William and his uh, method of science and so on and so forth. Uh, then I could have just uh, uh, then I could have just uh, slept well and thinking you know what I think Vikings actually had uh, hordes on their helmets uh, you know yeah. what I think they were cool enough to pull it off mm-hmm. or something like Vikings have the strongest bloodline so if you're from that bloodline somehow you are also uh, a great human being which uh, sadly it doesn't seem to be the case you're just a human being like the rest of us yeah so that's my that's my example William huh. where they go over. No, the other thing that I would add is, is you know, the testing that we do is key to our understanding. And, you know, just because something works in modern simulated combat doesn't mean it's something that Vikings would have done or would have even thought of. Uh, things that are, that make sense to us, that are desirable to us may have been abhorrent to them. And things that are abhorrent to them may be perfectly okay to us and, and, and vice versa. Um, so just because something works in the training room when we're trying it out doesn't mean that's something Vikings would have used. And that's been a key to our research is pretty forcefully trying to separate our 21st century mindset from their 9th century yeah. mindset. And um, the example that uh, always comes to mind for me is, is you know, in, in modern combat, Punches and yeah. kicks and other strikes makes so much sense. But if there's any evidence that Vikings used it, we can't find it. And we find plenty of evidence that they didn't because, for instance, the law code says that that's forbidden, as an example, kicks and punches. So, wow. Um, anything, Rainer, that you'd like Interesting. to add? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, the general, yeah. No, yeah, I don't think I don't think so. It's it's good about misconception. It's just uh, the simple way of um, if you and I know we're training or uh, doing experiment, then I would give you a sword and shield, and I would show you something, and you would say, "Well, that's not how I would do it." I would say, "Well, Noah, 
I just don't care. I'm looking for what Vikings would have done, not what you <laughs> would have done. Yeah, a lot right, of people right. who are studying this are looking for the most efficient way to use a weapon, and that may not have been the way the Vikings did it. Uh, no, we wrote a long-ass article about the, the traps and pitfalls of, uh, of modern uh, Viking researchers, and there are a lot, and we have hit that wall so many times, uh, other people don't have to. Yeah. Well, that segues nicely into uh, my next question. It's the same question for both of you. William, let's start with you. And that's, you know, how how did you get into this? How did you come to dedicate so much of your life to the study of Viking combat, which is absolutely fantastic? Okay, I'll try to give you the very short, condensed version. So I went through university, uh, got several degrees. They were all in technical field uh, in and I went to work in industry doing research, and this was in yeah. acoustics, audio, human hearing, those sorts of things. So I knew nothing about Vikings. I didn't care about Vikings, nothing. And then I heard that there were these stories called sagas, and I read one, and I liked it. And I read a few more, and I really liked it, and I wanted to find out more. And so I discovered that there was a summer course at the University of Iceland um, on this literature, and so I took the summer course and, wow. and fell in love with it, with the stories, with the people of Iceland, uh, with the people of the sagas, with the location. Uh, and I really wanted to do a whole lot more. And that eventually led to Herstwick. And for some reason, even though I have no martial arts background, I was given the role of figuring out how we can do combat research, combat training safely, because just before I had joined, there'd been a serious injury. So got connected with um, okay. people doing chemo work, which was the closest I could find at that time. And our research just continued from there on, on Viking research. And it became more and more and more of a, a part of my life to the point where 15 years ago, let's say, I quit my day job to do the Vikings full time. So that's, that's what wow. first week has been. And so we've Continued oh, um, the the research. We we've really pushed the science aspect of it to a huge degree. We've done some fabulous projects, but a really key part of Hirschwick's success is when Rainer joined the organization. And I'll let him tell that story. Yeah, yeah, okay. But I will answer the same question. How did I start this off? Uh, William just in his uh, poisonous mindset it polluted my brain, and some <laughs> something broke. No, I had no interest in Vikings at all. Just not at all. I was forced to read about them in school. And that was supposed to be the end of that for me. And uh, then for a coincidence, so I was, uh, um, uh, I had been training in martial arts at that time. And uh, for a, just an immense coincidence, I saw a small advertisement in the paper that there are some uh, American going to teach us how Vikings fly. So I went to this lecture, just interested in the fighting, not in the Vikings at all. And I could see right away, William is a, a, a genius. He is just intently clever man. Uh, I am the looks of Hurstley, clearly, and William is the brains. <laughs> so uh, why are you laughing? Anyway, so, uh, but I saw there was something off about his research. I had been punched in the nose often enough to know that you need to get punched in the nose to uh, say you know something. And I could see there, there was missing, punching in the nose. So I joined the, uh, joined the group uh, really slowly, but it just got more and more interesting every second. And 
both I and William, we sort of uh, were scared of this. Now, William was following a path trodden before him of uh, how to research Vikings. And I had a path trodden before me how to do martial arts. And I told him I was just super scared that my influence could mean that we were swinging the axe like a Filipino or doing the sword strike like a Korean martial art or something. So I told them, well, just wipe the slate clean. You will use science. You are a master of science. And I know some martial arts. And we will combine that with the sources. We will not go any path that has been trodden before us. So... Yeah, in answer to your question in the short way, I'm just a sick, sick man. And <laughs> uh, William just made as me an sick. aside, I have two side questions because I'm fascinated. Um, so, William, that course with the University of Iceland, was that a virtual yeah. course or an in-person course? No, it was in-person. It was a, Wow. A, a, so did, was did a, you then travel to Iceland for this? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I went to Iceland for three weeks to take the course, and it was a, an amazing experience. Really, uh, we got to see a lot of things as, as students of... Viking uh, of the Icelandic medieval literature and the sagas and Vikings that, you know, even very experienced academics may never get to see. It was a unique experience. No kidding. That's fascinating. That's so fascinating. Like a million years ago, before the age of computers, Noah. <laughs> so, well, I was, I was, I was going to say that sounds, that sounds absolutely like a blast, you know, traveling to Iceland for three weeks. Of course, Ranier, you live there. Um, in in taking that class, and then Rainier, I know you've done a lot of work, and you're doing a lot of work with Glima. Um, I know you've been recognized for that, so why don't you just tell us a little bit about that? And and first of all, just define for listeners what Glima is. Uh, I will. Uh, please stop me because this might be end being a really long ass <laughs> talk. So. What do you mean, Mike? It will be a long ass talk. Yeah. Well, you stop me, there, William. Uh, it's a. It's a. Glima is the sort of unarmed combat method of Vikings that evolved, uh, that uh, survived and thrived in Iceland. And there's a long story how that came about, how it, uh, why it only survived here. Uh, and it is a national sport of Iceland today. And it is mostly, uh, uh, in the Vikings, there was mostly wrestling method. There are, there are, there is even ground fighting in it, but it's like cavemen Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, if you, if you know what that is. And, <laughs> right. Uh, but it really, it really stuck to Iceland somehow. So for example, in the folklores, you have to know Glima to uh, raise a ghost, Dreyver, this mm. physical zombie. And you need to know Glima to fight a ghost, this physical zombie. So all uh, sort of uh, anim- uh, supernatural enemies, both in the Viking Age in the, and in the uh, folklore, they're mostly fought with Glima. And then in the later era, they fought Glima over who was on poop duty, and that was nearly to the death in the, in the, for the fishermen. It's just everything is Glima everywhere here in Iceland. doesn't matter where you look. Second World War, they chose Glima men as police officers. Uh, wow. Fishermen did Glima, priests did Glima, anachromasters did Glima, Vikings did Glima, and the god of Glima, of course, is, I'm not going to ask, it's Thor. Thor is the god of Glima, the only god who has done Glima, and, you know, done Glima against the, the King Olaf's men and the illusion Atli, the old age. Now, Glima is central to us because it's sort of, it was not long ago before we understood the, the, the intent importance of Glima. Uh, to us, if you don't understand the mindset and Glima, 
that it's really difficult to understand uh, Viking combat at all, just period. And yeah, that just made me fascinated with Glima. So I've been uh, studying it for these last few years. And again, I said there was a lot of misinformation or less important information or less good information online. It is hellish when it comes to Glima. Just most things on uh, Glima online are rubbish. So just go to the source glima.is uh, or check with uh, check our sources and uh, we'll guide you to the right place. Fantastic. Yeah, I mean, of course, they're buying the book. That's a given. <laughs> That's a given, of course. Well, I'll include yeah. links to that that website, Rainier, in the description of this episode, in addition to, of course, the book, uh, which is Men of Terror, a comprehensive analysis of Viking combat. Well, Rainier and William, you've been both been so generous with your time today. One last question for you. What advice would you share with listeners deeply fascinated by the history of the Vikings, those looking to connect with this history and experience it for themselves where possible. I'll start, if I may. Yeah. Please, if you're interested in Vikings and want to learn more, please be really careful about your sources. If you read something, ask, how does the author of this know what he or she is talking about? How do they know? How do you know yeah. what you know? And because if you start digging into a lot of the sources you find, you find that they have nothing. Uh, it's, sometimes it's just fantasy. Sometimes they're depending on things that were written a long time ago and somehow have gotten accepted, even though they, there's clear evidence that they're not correct. Um, it's complex. So please just be really careful of sources. Rainer? Yeah. Uh no, I'll say just have this childlike wonder. Uh, we it's uh, be really curious, uh, <laughs> it's, and it's supposed to be fun. Uh, it, I would have dropped out a long time ago. It wasn't entertaining. So curiosity, drop the ego, hundred percent, and uh, have fun with it. We have a uh, there's an old saying uh, in Klima that uh, you should, especially for beginners, expect to fall. Uh, expect to fall left and right. That's how you get better and better. So um, that's the same thing with this. Don't expect you uh, are right about everything. Don't have ego. Just be open and passionate and have fun with it. That's number one, two, or three. It should be something that is in of interest, not something of a chore or something you're fighting for. Excellent. Well, William and Rainier, thank you both so much for coming on the History of Vikings today. This has been a treat for me, and I know that the listeners enjoyed the conversation as well. I'll include a link to your book, Men of Terror, a comprehensive analysis of Viking combat, along with the Hurstwick website, the Gleema website, and William's other books that we mentioned in the description of this episode. But again, thank you both so much for coming on the show today. Uh, thank you for listening to our blabbery. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to the History of Vikings. If you've enjoyed today's show and would like to support the podcast, please consider doing so by supporting the History of Vikings on Patreon. Follow the link in the description of this episode or go to patreon.com slash history of Viking. I'm beyond grateful for any support. And if you join at the Odin tier, I'll mail you a physical copy of my book, Viking Warrior vs. Frankish Warrior, Frankia 799-911, which was published by Osprey. Thank you so much again for listening, 
please join us here again for another episode. 